We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Joining us today on Encountering Silence is Ruben L.F. Abito, who is both a Zen Roshi and a Catholic spiritual director. He is the founding teacher of the Maria Cannon Zen Center in Dallas, Texas. And he is the author of several books, including Be Still and Know, Zen and the Bible, Zen and the Spiritual Exercises, Healing Breath, Zen for Christians and Buddhists in a Wounded World, and Living Zen, Loving God. In his youth, Rubin entered the Jesuit order. He was sent to Japan on missionary work, where he began Zen practice under Yamada Kon Roshi, a Zen master who taught Christian students. In 1988, Rubin received Dharma transmission from Yamada Kon. Rubin left the Jesuits in 1989 and went on to teach at the Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University, where he continues to be a faculty member. He is married and has two sons. Rubin, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you very much. It's a privilege and honor and joy. Thank you. It's a privilege and honor and joy for us as well. So we typically invite our conversation to begin by asking our guests, tell us about your relationship with silence. And you can answer that any way you feel led to do. Okay. Silence for me is not so much a set of external conditions, but more of an inner state of mind. So there can be a lot of uh, things going on around with a lot of sounds and so on. But the way we live within that is, for me, what constitutes genuine silence. So there are some things that are beyond our control, like in our uh, Zen hall, there may be cars who are, um, uh, that are uh, passing um, through uh, the nearby streets, or there may be dogs barking or we sit in a church hall where beside us, or rather a few rooms near us, there is a daycare center. So there may be the sound of uh, little children uh, frolicking and so on. And so there are these sounds that are all around us. But yet what we emphasize is to maintain an inner silence where we are focused in the here and now. Uh, let me give you an example of that kind of silence. The other day, I was invited by some friends to a food fest here in Dallas. It was a big, big event where 40, 50 restaurants from the city were invited to put up stalls in a big, big hall in our uh, fair park, in a big um, park indoors. 
and there were hundreds and hundreds of people who were uh, in the hallway and there was music also this kind of music that you hear in um, discos and so on and so if you enter you feel like uh, joining the rhythm like that <laughs> and there were just these people uh, coming going from one stall to another tasting this food and then taking this drink and so on so there was literally speaking a lot of sound i would i wouldn't call them noise but sounds all over different kinds human voices the loud music the uh, footsteps the different kinds of click clacks and so on and somehow in the middle of that i was just beholding the scenario and i was caught up in a sense of tremendous joy just to be in the midst of that in the midst of life and so I just relished that and continued also. And also I tasted some food and also got my drink from uh, a stall. They were all uh, complimentary after you uh, come in with your ticket. And just stayed there. And I was even rocking and um, joining in the rhythm. And somehow people saw me dancing. What's this guy crazy now? And so on. No, but they were also inspired to dance with me. But I felt a sense of connectedness with all the people there. And again, another day, I was at a breakfast place. And so I came in, and after um, waiting a short while, after the line um, disappeared, and then I uh, had my, my turn, I was ushered into my seat. The music was, again, uh, very, very loud. So I asked the server, could you please tone it down a little bit? And she said, I'll try. But it didn't uh, make any difference. There were, of course, uh, people chattering and the sound of the uh, plates and the spoons and forks and so on. But somehow, again, in the middle of that, I felt some kind of unspeakable joy of just being in the middle. Somehow, one would say, but that's a very noisy place to find that kind of thing. Well, I don't know, but uh, if you are at a place within you that enables you to be at home where you are, that's where you can find that interior silence that can connect and enable you to really open your heart in a warm embrace. That's what silence is for me. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, after a while, I got tired of the loud music, so I asked the server, could I have a seat outside on the patio? And there were several seats there. Oh, sure, by all means. So I transferred. Now... The scenario was gifted with the external silence of the garden and of the birds chirping outside. And so, externally speaking, there was a whole world of a difference. And I also relished that kind of silence. But yet, it was not that different from the kind of inner silence that I felt from within. So, external silence can help in conditioning us to work towards focusing on the here and now. But it's not a totally necessary uh, requirement. We can find that silence anywhere we are. That's what I mm. felt. That there are some helpful situations, but there are some situations that we cannot control at all. And yet, they can still provide us the impetus to return to that point where we can find the connectedness with everyone. Just, yeah. two, just two little incidents in the last week or so that happened that I'd like to share, which yeah. enabled me to experience silence in that angle. Yeah, thank you. 
um, yeah, I often catch myself in, in those kind of loud situations. Um, I would say I'm not quite to where you are yet, um, but I, I often catch myself saying, keep the silence and stillness within, keep the silence and stillness within. And I wonder, you know, in those situations, obviously your response is a result of years and years of, of practice and this deep, this deep practice. And I wonder for those of us that, you know, aren't at that place that can see that deep unity in those moments of noise and busyness, what, what would you suggest in how to handle those kinds of times when they're overwhelmed? Mm. What I would suggest to persons who have actually asked me what uh, they need to do in the midst of a busy day and they want to uh, maintain a sense of stillness, so I tell them just take a deep breath and another and another. So three deep breaths in the middle of a busy day, in the middle of a very um, loud context and so on, can enable us to come home to the here and now. And somehow the breath does wonders. Mm. It's there with us and we don't notice it. But when we do notice it, we know that we are held by a power greater than ourselves, greater than the universe, in fact. And it is that breath that brings us home. So I, it's very simple. It's always accessible. Breathe in and breathe out and we're there at home. So mm -hmm. that's the first thing that I would suggest to people who are looking for their way in the midst of this busy world. Just pay attention and, to your breath. And then eventually we'll be dancing like you, right, Ruben? Uh, I trust <laughs> that will happen. I trust that that will happen. If you are mm. truly one with a the breath, then you're giving your ego mm. to that which is bigger than you, which will enable you to dance with the universe. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about your daily practice that has led to kind of that that ability to get to the place of dancing amid that? Well, what I do is begin the day with what you can call an oblation. That's a fancy English word that simply means offering. I learned this in the novitiate when I entered in my late teens, the very first day, or rather uh, the first day after we entered the afternoon before, we were taught the bell will ring at 5 a.m. And so we were in dormitory beds in, in a big, big hall. There were about 19 of us all together, 19 young men from the ages of their late teens to early 30s. And so that was our little community together with our master of novices. Anyway, as the bell rang, the, well, the, the leader of the novices had to wake up about 15 minutes earlier, get dressed, and then pre be prepared to ring the bell. So the bell would ring, and we were instructed to just, uh, well, no, the uh, leader would shout, Benedicamus Domino, let us bless the Lord. And we were instructed to say in response with a voice as loud as we can, Deo gracias, thanks be to God, and then wake up and then kneel down, if possible, and then we would uh, uh, go down on the floor and put our forehead on the floor and then kneel and open our arms wide in an offering of self while kneeling. For about a minute or so, stay like that and just breathe in and breathe out and utter a prayer from the heart. Either thy will be done or you are my savior or you are my beloved 
uh, an utterance from the heart that either comes from scripture or from a devotional uh, practice that allows us to give our whole being and specially dedicate this day to whatever God wants me to do in this life for this day. So that's how I would begin my day. I have not, uh, I have not uh, stopped that at all, even after I left the Jesuits. I was 25 years a Jesuit, and now I've been married and uh, with uh, a family for more than 25 years. And it's been a great blessing all throughout. But that's still a practice that keeps me. That's the very first thing, just to enable me to live my day no longer just seeking myself or seeking my own goals and ambitions, but just to offer myself for whatever I can be useful for in this world of ours. And so that already connects me to something that I know is beyond myself. And so then I go uh, to my usual uh, brushing my teeth, washing my face and so on, and then for breakfast. So that already sets forth my day. And then during the day, I carve a 20-minute time when I sit, and just time myself with a nice little uh, app on my phone and just stay in stillness, just breathing in and breathing out. Then I go, I go about my work or preparing my classes, reading my books or writing my essays or meeting people and so forth. And during the day, again, as I was saying, I also uh, um, suggest this to people at a time when you feel that you're kind of uh, thrown off or lost or uh, needing some kind of inner inner peace, take a deep breath. And so that's what helps me reconnect to the here and now. And I am able to just find my way home again in whatever situation I am. So, uh, of course, I described a very uh, idyllic situation. I am not always there. I'm always uh, caught by people. Hey, what what are you doing with your cell phone and so on? So, uh, but um, with all my frailty and my weaknesses, still those ways give me that support that enables me to keep coming back home to the breath. So that's basically what my practice consists in. And of course, um, I go to our Zen center where I sit with people at a um, definite time, like on a Wednesday evening, we have one and a half hours, three 30-minute sits back to back to back. And then on Saturdays, uh, once a month, we have an all-day Zen um, session from 8 o'clock in the morning until 5 p.m. And so there I sit with a larger group of people who uh, join me in that silence. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. Ruben, hearing you describe uh, silence as this interior space and, and then hearing about your daily practice, I'm curious, 
Has this always been something part of your life? When did you discover this stance, this interior stance of silence as a necessary piece for you? When did it first speak to you? Basically, as I was saying earlier, uh, as I was trained in the Jesuit life and spirituality when I entered the Jesuits as a novice. Mm. For the first two years, we were given um, basic guidelines on living a life no longer for oneself, but for God alone. And so step by step, we were initiated into this. And there were ups and downs and twists and turns, but that somehow was my um, initiation into this kind of life. And somehow it stuck. Mm. And so when I was sent to Japan um, seven years later, after having entered the Jesuits, I, um, I then um, was introduced to Zen. And it's, again, just a matter of no longer using the discursive part of my mind, but just allowing that to be at rest and just sit and be still. And so somehow that clicked with what I had already learned from my Ignatian mm spiritual exercises, mm. although I have to admit that my way of taking the Ignatian exercises at that part when I was still uh, early on was on the more conceptual side, where, of course, the uh, visualization of the scenes of Jesus's life and so on, they were really very nourishing and enriching for me. But then when I got introduced to Zen, it was like just taking the fourth week of the exercises as the starting point, rather than going from the first week through the um, mm. discernments and so on, and then second and third week, and then the fourth. It's like seeing a mountain that um, is there before you, and the top of the mountain is where you need to go. Mm. So Zen is like a helicopter that took me directly to the top of the mountain and enabled me to have the panoramic view of the fourth week. Right. But then for those who do that, they still need to do the inner work of getting through the contours of their own psyche so that they can really match their psychological and physical and sociological uh, makeup with the spiritual high that this practice can offer rather than, uh, in, in short, um, doing a what, what they call a spiritual bypass. That's a very, very uh, common word now, and that's a very... Yeah. Um, tricky pitfall for many who look to the spiritual path as a, uh, a fix-it and a uh, panacea for all of their uh, psychological and other issues. Mm. So anyway, to match the psychological, sociological, and psychophysical elements of oneself with that spiritual dimension is a lifelong task. We're always frail, mortal, weak human beings, but somehow... If we have a place that we can come home to and entrust ourselves to, then at least we know we're in good hands. Mm. And, and it's fascinating to me to hear that, that response about this. It seems very important, this interreligious piece for you, this Zen and the Ignatian. And is there more than that in, in involved here? Because um, your background from the Philippines, and so is there, was there even more that informed that uh, into this dialogue, or was it just those two voices? Basically, those are the two main streams of uh, living waters that I feel continue to uh, nourish me and bathe me and mm. cleanse me. 
Yeah, now, beautiful. there are tributaries all over when I look at other religious traditions and so on. There are always very attractive things mm. you've uh, heard about. Uh, well, I think it was uh, Barbara... Brown Taylor. Brown Taylor, who talks mm. about holy envy. Yes, when very much. When you see things in other religions... Well, that was, uh, that was attributed to uh, another teacher right. uh, before right. her. But Christian Stendhal, see, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that's right, Christian Stendhal. So when you see good things and you feel that they're also holy and they're from another tradition, there is that holy envy. But somehow, if you're really envious enough, there's nothing to prevent you from adopting that tradition and incorporating it within your own spiritual path that can enrich your own home tradition. And that's what happened uh, with Zen to me. Mm. I, I no longer look at Zen as something that those Buddhists have that I don't have. But somehow Buddhists were very open and they invited me in. And so I took the invitation. And so I felt at home there also. Mm. Now, But what I do with my Catholic or my Christian faith and my faith in Christ and the triune mystery, that's what I had to work out for years and years. And I'm still doing so to try to articulate it in a conceptually uh, coherent way. And that's where I run into trouble because there's <laughs> no logical, coherent way of making sense of the Trinity. Right. right. But one hint that yeah. I have there is uh, Nicolas of Cusa, whose own experience led him to the expression coincidencia oppositorum. Uh, well, uh, that's a highfalutin Latin word, but it's simply the, the, um, the merging of opposites. So uh, concepts when you look at them as concepts, seem to be totally um, irreconcilable mm. or incommensurable, as um, theologians would say. But mm. somehow, from the point of view of a religious experience, you cannot but affirm both sides of the contradiction with equal strength. Right. Like in our own Christian tradition, Jesus of Nazareth is fully human. And yet that same human being is fully divine. Right. What do you make of that? Right. So there were these uh, attempts at making uh, Jesus somehow a demigod and so on, but the church said that's not it. And then uh, some were said, no, that is simply a human, but with, uh, with special uh, gifts of God, that's not it either. So the contradiction stands, and yet that's where our Catholic and Christian faith stands on, banks on. Right. That very contradiction that we keep affirming. Or the Trinity. How can you say three is one? Right. One plus one plus one is one. Equals one. How can you say that? Right. Some and uh, nobody in their rational mind would 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 uh, ascribe to that. And yet that's what our Christian faith stands on. Mm-hmm. Somehow, but yet we know that there's something in our gut that tells us that must be so, because our experience tells us our experience of that which is beyond speech, beyond thought. It's most genuine for us, more than more genuine than anything else. So it's an invitation to that experience of the unspeakable. Mm. And that's where silence comes in. Mm. Beautiful. Ruben, thank you for sharing your story. And um, this, I think this is a, a very rich um, area of interest for me as well. I'm, I'm also uh, a Catholic and I... I'm very privileged to be the RCIA uh, co-director at oh, a Jesuit parish that's a here in Atlanta. It, it is a tremendous privilege because, of course, as you can imagine, the Jesuits approach 
even in the parish, they approach faith formation as as a process of spiritual right. uh, spiritual exploration and discernment, you know, that Correct. kind of thing. Correct. Um, one of the questions I think that that I'm interested in, and and I I don't I'm a little hesitant to ask this. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice because I don't want this to get us into too cerebral of a direction. Mm-hmm. But but I'll I'll ask it and hopefully you know we can we can all kind of prevent ourselves from going there. But the question is, there seems to be many different kind of conversations going on about the the encounter between Buddhism and Christianity that has been happening. You know what going on a century or more now. You know, and so I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Paul Knitter. I'm thinking of of um, William Johnston, who I imagine you knew in Tokyo. Uh, yeah. um, uh, you know, Tilden Edwards. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's uh, just a number of different people who have um, Thomas Merton who have kind of engaged in Merton. Of course, is the big name. Yeah, who yes. they've engaged in this conversation, and 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 different people are kind of articulating what this encounter means in different ways. Yes. So, for example, you have Nitter saying, "Without the Buddha, I could not be a Christian." Mm-hmm. And and to read his book, uh, you know, which is a fairly theologically nuanced book, but really kind of this idea that that for him, Buddhism kind of shores up Christianity. Maybe that's mm-hmm. not fair. I don't mean to be putting words in his mouth, but as I read the book, that was what I took away from it. Uh-huh. And then I think there are others who um, I think of Susan Stabile. She she says she's a dual practitioner where she sees Buddhism and Christianity as each having their own deep integrity. And for some, you know, God only knows reason, she has been called to be engaged with both. Yes. Then for a more contrarian view, we recently had a guest on our uh, podcast, a sister Mary Margaret Funk, mm-hmm. who talks about the need to stay in your own lane. So even though Sister Meg was very radically committed to interfaith dialogue, she seemed to kind of draw the line at at interspiritual work. So obviously, many different people have many different perspectives. So I'm curious, um, do you identify as a Catholic who is also a Zen practitioner? Do you identify as a Catholic who is also a Buddhist or as a Buddhist Catholic, et cetera, et cetera? Um, just curious to hear your thoughts there. Mm, that is a uh, very common question I receive, and uh, I'm always uh, at a loss because, well, those are labels. Mm-hmm. And of course, be living in an embodied world, we need labels to be able to point out and describe things. And so what I can say is that having been born and raised in the Catholic faith, of course, I've had my own struggles with doubts about whether God exists or doubts about the um, identity of Jesus Christ and so on and the Trinity and so on throughout. But somehow there is a sense of assurance that this is my home. And I've never lost that, even when I was practicing Zen and I was already um, in a place where the intricacies of Zen, koans and so on were already getting um, into my system, somehow being Catholic is part of who I am, which I cannot deny. So I keep Mm. trying to be faithful to myself as someone born in a Catholic tradition. Mm. 
but not in the Catholic tradition of a certain type that uh, you would identify with rules or uh, external practices, but to be Catholic with a way that embraces both. Charles Curran, a good friend of mine and colleague here at SMU, wrote a book based on his own journey called Loyal Descent. Mm. He has been beleaguered a lot by the um, uh, ruling uh, hierarchy and so on, and has been uh, regarded as a pariah from the so-called um, orthodox magisterial uh, standpoints. But he's a serious theologian, and he really is um, a priest in good standing. He is recognized by his bishop, and he says mass and we have the privilege of joining him when he celebrates the Eucharist every now and then. So his way of understanding what Catholic means is something that goes from early tradition on, that to be Catholic is to affirm both sides of a theological question. Is it human or is it divine? Or is it three or is it one? Or um, is it grace or is it free will? And so on. All of these controversies that have divided theologians and have set off some who go one end as so-called heretics and so on, or the other way and so on, somehow um, continues to be part of our human situation, but to, to be able to affirm both and in certain situations where there is a conceptual conflict is somehow associated with being Catholic. And that's where I'm finding a sense of inner affirmation. And also what makes me most um, able to say I continue to be Catholic and I want to be is because of the Eucharist. Mm. When I receive the sacred body in the form of bread and the blood in the form of uh, wine, and upon that bread and upon that wine has been said the words, this is my body, this is my blood given for you. That is somehow what makes me who I am, if I, if I may say so. Mm. That I'm no longer myself, but that's what makes me who I am, or at least my, makes me what I want to be. Mm. And so if that's not Catholic, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. But in that regard, when I sit in Zen and when I also join my uh, Zen teacher colleagues in their annual uh, Zen teachers meetings, I find myself accepted by them, and I'm one of them, and I am able to uh, really find friendships and uh, resonances with them also, and I can speak the same language because we have come through similar uh, ways of training, of course, with the different schools. So somehow, perhaps you can call it a matter of being able to speak in more than one language. Mm. Well, some say that, well, you, can, you have to have one as a mother tongue, and another as a foreign language that you've acquired, however skillful and so on, maybe that's another factor. But somehow, if you're speaking a language long enough, it becomes part of you so that it's no longer something that you consider foreign to yourself. So in that way, those who are bilingual speakers, especially those who have been raised with both languages since early, uh, early childhood on, can transfer from one to the other very smoothly and without batting an eye, continue in the, another language and didn't even realize they were switching and so on. Mm. So that's where I find myself in uh, responding to that question. Are you Catholic? Are you Buddhist? 
Well, depends on maybe depends on the day or maybe depends on my mood, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I wish I could be fully myself and uh, connect with those who identify with one or other or both traditions. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I, 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 I sense that Cassidy has a question I'm going to let her, but I just want to make this comment that I, I, while Charles Curran's book, uh, about, uh, being a dissenter is wonderful. I also like Francis Sullivan's, uh, quote that theologians are supposed to be creatively fidel, uh, uh, faithful. Yes. So so it's creative, creative fidelity as as something beautiful about that. Correct. Thank you. I love that. Yes. So. This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is KevinMichaelJohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.